Hello, my name is Ted Stevenow, and welcome to the latest episode of the Health and Money Podcast. Today we're going to do what is the last reading from the book, Downside Sooner Than Later, 18 Rules for Retirement Success. And Today we're just going to pick out one of the appendix uh, elements of the book. There are three of them, and two of them I'm going to just leave for people to look at it if they want to buy a copy of the book. It's not that because they're not interesting or exciting or I'm withholding them, it's just... Um, Maybe we'll do this another day, but I, mean, I think for right now, I'm trying to just to finish the book and get the key points. This this appendix I'm going to read to you today would have been a rule, uh, just reframed as a rule, but it would have been 19. It just didn't seem like, I, I felt like 18 was a lot of rules as it is, but uh, it's funny. This is, this is a, a topic that is extremely important, and it's almost like you could you could do a whole book just on this, and maybe it should have been one of the very first rules. But the reason I took, I held it back was because it has an element of complexity, and I don't want to lose people. I mean, I've written things before, and I give people you know a draft copy and say, "Hey, what do you think?" And it's it's crazy how sometimes people just get hung up on one particular chapter because it deals with a topic that's difficult. And and here, I I think the thing about this is that we've thrown everybody into this experimental world of a self self directed retirement plans, which just means you instead of having a pension or retiring from a company that promises to pay you, you know, a significant percentage of your prior income for life, we have people put money into these, these, their, their defined contribution plans. That means that you, what's, you decide how much you're going to put in them and then they grow based on what happens in the market over time versus a defined benefit plan, which is like a, a, a pension where the defined, where when you retire, there's a def, defined benefit that you're going to receive. So it's a little bit of a word switching and wordplay. And it's funny, the difference between a defined benefit you know, as a contract to promise to pay an employee for life an income based on their prior wage is, is, is you know, that's, that's quite a thing uh, versus plans that are called defined contribution plans where it's just all you're saying is, well, how much do you want to put away a month? Okay, okay, I'm going to put this much away. Or then, then there's the employer match, which is really, really piggybacked on what the employee decides to contribute. So those already were getting into crazy words going by so fast, people are confused. What is it? So let's 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 re- re- rewind a little bit. So there are really two fundamental common types of retirement plans. One is the defined benefit, which means they say, okay, when you retire, we're going to pay you a percentage of your of your highest wage or your last three highest wages or your last five years. They've got all kinds of different formulas. But so that's when a person retires and they get a pension, they get a check for the promise to them for the rest of their life. That's defined benefit. Then the other world is the 401k, IRA, 403b type world. That's defined contribution where what you're defining, the only thing that's defining is just the person saying, well, I'm going to put 10% of my salary away. And then maybe the person, the entity they work for says, well, okay, we'll help you. We'll, we'll match that in some, with some match. But the, but the focus is on the amount you're contributing to the plan. So a person makes these contributions over their lifetime and then the monies accumulate in a basket. Now that could be from, again, from a variety of different jobs and you can have different IRAs. There's all kinds of things that go on, but let's just conceptually say today, we're going to just sweep all that money into a basket and say, that's, that's a, we're going to call that a portfolio, right? So the, the mix of investments in that basket are a portfolio. And what we're doing is we're, we're talking about portfolio based retirements. So when you retire, you're handed the basket with some kind of portfolio in it and you're hope and goal is to be able to make those funds last for the rest of your life, right? And nobody knows how long they're going to live. So that could be a short time that could be, or that could be well past a hundred. And the other factor is that you, if you're married, you have a spouse to plan for so that that money's got to last for both of you. So at some point, you know, unless, 
many people rarely kind of pass away in the same day unless there's some kind of a tragic event that occurs. But for the most part, that means that probably probably one spouse is going to pass away and then the, the second spouse is going to going to live on. And so there's the, the just the taking in mind that it's going to last for both people. So that you have this basket of funds. OK, so so when a planner or an individual, right, you don't have to be a planner, it just could be you, <clears throat> takes a look at the money that you've scraped, you've, you've collected and had invested and grow over time for retirement. So you got this basket, right, this portfolio. People have to try to figure out, well, depending on how much money's in the, the basket, how much they can take out each year to pay for bills, to pay for bread, milk, and eggs, to be able to support themselves in retirement. And you have to be careful, right? You can't just take half of the money out and spend it the first year and then think, oh, this is gonna last me forever because obviously that's too much in one year because you're going to live many years presumably after that so you wouldn't want to spend half of it in a year you see what i'm saying so there's a relative position so or a person could say well i'm only going to take one percent out or a small percent and the idea is that what's the balance how do we decide how much we're going to take out and how long the funds are going to last there's another factor these called required minimum distributions which happen later but we'll just we'll, we'll set that idea aside for a moment what we're looking for is a number that's going to be uh or what planners look for individuals are going to have to plan on their own now an amount of money that, that they can take out yet enables the remaining funds to sustain over time. And so there's a lot of kind of compass points and waypoints people use for this. And a very common one is the is, for example, on the stock market to say the S&P 500 has a hist history, has historical returns of roughly seven and a half percent after tax uh, for people. So so people can say, well, I've got a million dollars in there and I can expect, you know, if I'm using this waypoint, uh, uh, that maybe seven and a half percent of that money is going to is going to be available. There's going to be a growth in that amount in a, in a given year. So under one popular old school model was was called the four percent rule. People said, well, I can take four percent of the of the money that my my funds make, or four percent of my my portfolio. And there's going to be that three and a half. There's going to be an amount over the top. So I'm not taking all the gains. I'm just taking some of them, and I'm reinvesting what remains. And so that I'm that I, the idea is to create. A sustained system where your your withdrawals can come out, but the, but there's enough money in the that remains in the basket that it can continue to grow based on these sort of historical averages averages and not run out over time. Okay, so now man, there again, that's a lot. That's complicated. Welcome to the new world. That every single person, regardless of what their career might have been, you know, they might be like a really great surgical nurse. Uh, they might be a fantastic uh, plumber. They might be an engineer, okay, focused on the, the science and business of what they were in. And now when they retire, they have to learn about this stuff. And, uh, and, they, and, and they have to learn about it so well that they need to be able to not make a mistake and, and find themselves in a di very difficult position when they're in their very senior year. So, I mean, I'm not trying to make a huge commentary on that reality, but man, it's very difficult and there's a lot going on. So, so here, I want to just address this issue of how does someone decide how to derive an income from their, from their basket of funds? And so, so what I want to speak to today is the waypoint. Now, a lot of people use that seven and a half number or some type of number based on a historical market average return. Okay. And this is the most important part right here. Most important point, whatever the average is. Okay. It's created by a series of individual events. Like, so there's, let's say there's 20 years. Well, each of the 20 years is going to have a percentage. Some years are going to be up. Some years are going to be down. Some years are going to be sort of in the middle. Right. And what you're doing is you're average, you're trying to figure like, well, what's the average going to be over that time? And that's how people are, are trying to calculate how much they can take out safely. And here's the rub. Okay. When you look at a stated average, so for example, that seven and a half return from the S&P, well, what you have to consider or what's not obvious or what's, what's the perilous, okay, is 
is that the order in which those returns occur over time to create the average, okay, has an enormous impact on, on whether or not you can sustain your funds when you're taking withdrawals. So, so people think they're safely going, well, it's going to be an average of seven and a half. And then all of a sudden they find out that the, the order of returns, so that they might get seven and a half over 20 years, but depending on how that manifests itself, the sequence that those returns each year, how those, those returns present themselves may, has, has a huge impact on whether or not they literally may run out of money or, or may be in great shape. So I've already talked for eight minutes. Dang it. And I, I just want to, cause it's such a, it's such an important topic and it's got a level of complexity and I want to try to just do the best I can to explain all the parts of it. So you see, I mean, it's just one of these things that everybody should know about this because it's a huge factor in the, in, in determining by chance really how, whether or not retirement funds are going to last. So I'm going to go ahead and just read this, this chapter and then we'll come back, circle back and talk about it some more and just do our best. And you're always welcome at the end of this to email me, with questions or comments um and of course i invite everybody to pick up a copy of, of the book uh downside sooner than later in this, in this appendix it's on page 151 it has all the charts and the information that, that comes along with this show here so let's just dive in we'll read it and uh and then we'll circle back and talk about it okay page 151 appendix b sequence of returns this appendix is about a risk inherent in portfolio-based retirement income plans called sequence of returns I considered including it in the rules, but it can appear a bit too technical to some, so it seemed better as an appendix. This risk is derived from the impact of making regular withdrawals from an invested retirement portfolio for income purposes over time. It is uncontrollable, unpredictable, and difficult to detect even when one is ensnared within its relentlessly closing jaws. With disturbing frequency, this risk leads to the eventual depletion of retirement funds. This depletion being unhurried often delivers its most devastating blow at the worst possible time in late and vulnerable retirement years. Astonishingly, few investors seem to be aware of this risk. I find this fact stunning. It should be posted as a warning label all over portfolio-based retirement planning literature, yet little seems to be said about it. For your own protection, I encourage you to familiarize yourself with the fundamentals of sequence of returns risk. For your own benefit and for others, I challenge you to learn it so well you could teach it. So here goes. Let's begin by dealing with the most difficult concept, and that is defining what is meant by a sequence. If I were to serve you a three-course meal, it might go in the order of salad, followed by main course, followed by dessert. However, if I change the order or the sequence, it might go dessert, followed by main course, followed by salad. Regardless of the differences in the two sequences, the same average meal is served. It has the same average weight, the same average calories, and the same average nutritional value, etc. It may seem unconventional in the second example for dessert to come first, but even so, it doesn't change the fact that the average values remain 100% the same. Just like with a meal, it is possible when two people invest or retire at differing times, they may experience similar average returns over time yet the experience of those returns will appear in differing sequences. For example, Sally retired and started making income withdrawals in a year the market was down 13%. Bill retired and started making withdrawals in a year the market was up 7%. Francis retired and started making withdrawals in a year the market was up 27%. The three numbers representing initial investment returns for Sally, Bill, and Francis above 
are as follows, minus 13%, 7%, and 27%. Add them up and you get a total of 21. Divide 21 by 3 and you get an average of 7%. This is called an arithmetic average. Similarly, the often quoted 7.5% inflation adjusted rate of return of stocks, including dividends, is an arithmetic average. This arithmetic average is frequently used by planners as a waypoint to help determine appropriate portfolio-based income withdrawals during retirement. Just like with the meal, you can add the three numbers above together in any sequence you want and you'll still get a total of 21 and an average of 7%. And I have a list where I go through, I take each one of them and I, I add them up, like minus 13 plus 27 plus 7 equals 21, 21 divided by 3 equals 7%. I just put them all in their different orders and you come out with the 7%. But here's the rub. Unlike the order of entrees served in a meal, the order in which these numbers appear as returns in a person's portfolio-based income retirement plan can have an enormous impact on how long his or her portfolio funds last during retirement. Let's look at a test case. Using the rates of return listed above, minus 13, 7, and 27, we will apply returns in different sequences to portfolios funding systematic withdrawals, just as would be the case for individuals funding their retirements. To keep things simple, we'll start with $100 nest egg and take $10 out of the portfolio each year to pay bills. Both examples will experience the same 7% average return over time. The only difference between the two scenarios is the sequence in which the returns occur, or the order in which the returns occur. In sequence one, Sally's order of returns are negative 13% in year one, 7% in year two, 27% in year three. These returns will continuously repeat over time to yield an ongoing average return of 7%. In sequence two, Francis, his, will have an order of returns of 27% in year one, 7% in year two, and minus 13% in year three. These returns will continuously repeat over time to yield an ongoing average of 7%. Let's see what happens. Now there's two charts here that are just impossible to read, but in sequence one, in the first year, the person has $100 in total funds. They withdraw $10, they have a balance of $90, and they experience the first, the first of the three returns. They re experience an, a minus 13% return. So at the end of the year, they've made their withdrawal, they've had their, they've had their minus 13%, and their balance is $78.30. Then you go to year two. In year two, from $78.30, they take the $10 withdrawal, right, to pay bills by milk, egg, and, milk eggs, and bread. And then they have a balance of $68.30. Now they get the second of this, the, the returns we're talking about. In this case, it's 7%. And so the balance at the end of the year is $73.08. And then we go to year three. In year three, the $73.08 first has $10 withdrawn for income, which leaves $63.08 left over, and that gets the 27% return, which leaves a balance at the end of the year of $80.11. Now you can see this, this, is a, this is a dance that's going on. So each year there's the, the, we're, we're establishing the average by these differing amounts occurring each year. And the, the first sequence, the, the, the person who starts has a minus 13%, to, be, to kick things off. And in the second sequence, the person has a plus 27%. So again, it's difficult with all these numbers here, but here's the, here's, the, here's the gist. If you keep running that machine in the first sequence, which was minus 13%, then 7%, then 27%. So the person started off with some negatives in the beginning. Even though it's going to average out to be 7%, they started off, their sequence began with, some ne with a negative 13. That person, it takes 11 years 
before their balance is down to $6.81. And then by the 12th year, they run out of the, the $6.81 is not even enough to make the $10 withdrawal. Now let's, we're gonna go ahead and look at the second, the second example. So sequence two, okay, example two. And this one, instead of beginning with ne negative 13%, then going to 7%, then going to 27%, the second person begins with a positive 27% year, then goes to a positive 7% year, and then it's, it's not until the third year that they have a minus 13%, okay? And in this case, so in the first year, they have $100, they take 10 out, they've got 90 remaining, and they have a 27% rate of return that year. So their year-end balance is $114.30, which is great. So that's different than what happened to the other person who, instead of after they took their withdrawal, they only had $78.30, okay? So you can already start to see. So at the end of this guy's, this person's first year, they're plus at the $114.30. And the second year comes, they start with their $114.30. They take out their $10 they need to buy milk, egg, and eggs, and bread. They have a balance of $104. They get a 7% rate of return. So then the end of their year, they have $111.60. Now we go to year three. This is the year this person's going to take their first hit. They begin the year with $111.60. They take out 10. They have $101.60 remaining. They get a negative 13% return. Their balance at the end of the year is $88.39. Now, if we keep rolling that sequence over and over again to create our 7% average. So these two examples have the same average return over time. It's just manifesting in different sequences or different orders. In the second scenario, beginning with the same balance, taking out the same amount of money, okay? The second person has their funds last 16 years. It's not until the 17th year that they're broke. Whereas in the first example, the funds lasted for 11 years and in the 12th year they're broke. Okay, so what happens is I'm trying to show that they have the exact same withdrawal, they have the exact same starting amount, they have the exact same average, but because of the order of the returns they experienced, they had drastically different results in how long their money lasted. So let's then we're gonna head and I'm gonna go back to reading again. What lessons do we learn? Sequence two ends up yielding 44% more income than sequence one, which was $168.37 versus $116.81 and lasts five years longer. That this happened is blind, random luck and beyond the control of presidents, cable news commentators, celebrity endorsements, economists, financiers, prognosticators, financial advisors, the media, and the roar of the crowd. Further, it happens with the same $100 nest egg, the same rate of withdrawal, and the same long-term average page, rate of return. The only difference is the unpredictable and uncontrollable order or sequence of the returns. You can create examples of these sequences ad nauseum. The results will invariably show that the difference in the order of returns, especially more negatives in early years, either just before or just after retirement begins, can have a dramatic impact on how long a person's retirement funds ultimately last. Can you imagine how many people went broke before this issue was identified and called out? Can you imagine how many more people are going to go broke having never had it explained to them? Note again also, women are generally put most at risk because on average they live longer. It is a very difficult situation and an unintended consequence of the shift from defined benefit retirement income funding, i.e. pension pooled income models, to self-directed defined contribution retirement income funding, i.e. 401k IRA portfolio based income models. Some get off swimmingly while others crash and burn, all in a roll of the dice. But again, it doesn't have to be this way, especially for those who feel they will live longer than the average. 
The solution is clear and is woven into the prior rules presented in this book. These are bullet points, but I'm just going to read them together. Um, and it's funny, this is a, this is a pretty concise summary of, of the main message that I wanted to say in this whole book when I was writing it. It's so funny how when you write a book, sometimes or, or read a news article, you have to wait until the very end before the person finally has the, the, you know, the moment where they summate everything that they really wanted to say in the beginning. So, especially for those who feel they will live longer than average, the solution is clear and woven into the prior rules presented in this book, notably. Accept that you will always have bills to pay. Lower and control your ongoing expenses. Downsize sooner than later. If possible, delay Social Security to age 70, thereby maximizing it. Separate your income from your wealth. For income, arrange to pay your basic ongoing bills with ever-replenishing, non-stock market-dependent pooled income. A dollar used to pay a bill from portfolio-based savings is gone forever. A dollar used to pay a bill from pooled income lasts a lifetime. For wealth, plant a money tree and don't disturb it. It will be ideally situated to benefit from future averages rather than be punished by them. This remains true regardless of the sequence of returns over time. When the market goes up or down, forget about it. Instead, go have lunch with a grandchild paid for with funds you received from pooled income. Where possible, stay economically productive. This supplements your income and allows you to add fertilizer to your money tree. It keeps you sharp, reduces stress, promotes positive social connections, and gives you more funds to enjoy. And finally, have adequate insurance. Plan for long-term care to protect your wealth and the safety of the people who care about you the most. So, and that's the end of that appendix. So, let's I, we'll circle back and we'll try to just highlight again. I'm, I, my apologies for kind of repeating this point, but it's just... It's, I think it's, it's hard to assess, especially on a podcast. I can't look in the crowd. I can't look in faces of the listeners and say, are you guys seeing this? Is this making sense? I just want to return to this, this concept. So in the first sequence, we, we named the person who had that sequence. That was Sally, I think. Turn, turn the pages here. Yeah, that was Sally. So she had a minus 13% in the first year. Then she went to 7%. Then she had plus, plus 27%. So 7 and 27% were both positive years. But the first year was this negative 13. Her money, where she was able to take a complete withdrawal, only lasted 11 years just because of this order whereas the second person Francis he had the same average rate of return began again my apologies for repeating it but it's the I gotta hammer the point home same amount of money to begin with same amount withdrawn okay each year he he because his his order of returns his sequence of returns was 27% in the beginning then 7% then the minus 13 so he had a better first year better first few years than than Sally did his money lasted 16 years versus 11. Okay, now this is just a simplistic kind of version of showing how this works just because I didn't want to get, you know, I didn't want to put big numbers in it. It's, I'm, I sometimes look back and I wrote this and I'm like, why the hell did I use $100 to start with? I should use a more realistic number that people would follow. And then the other thing too is I turned up, I turned up the volume. This $10 withdrawal, that would be like a 10% withdrawal from a person's retirement plan, which is, which is arguably by almost everyone that's too much because you, you don't, you're not going to gain as fast as you could. But, it, but what it did here is that it quickly made the point where it didn't, it didn't take long for the impact or the difference to be, to be easy to see. So in the one case, the person got 44% more income than the other person, even though they, had, again, I'm, I'm going to repeat it, they had the same amount of money in the beginning. They took the same amount of money out each year. The only difference was the order in which the returns manifest. 
the order, the sequence of those returns. So when people say, oh, you should pay attention and learn about sequence of returns risk. I mean, I just see people, their eyes just glaze over. They're like, what? Sequence of return? What are you talking about? It's, it takes a couple layers of the onion to peel back a couple layers of the onion to see it. But what's, what's I guess the thing that just kind of blows my mind about it is, is the whole, I mean, planners have no choice but to pick a waypoint. So, you know, if they look at historical stock market average and they say, well, 7%, 7.5%. Whatever number you're seeing people pick, whether you're whatever you're doing on your own, I mean, what, how are you going to decide? So you have your number. I, it almost is immaterial what the average is, because what's material is the order in which that average is 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 created. And so, and the, the other thing about it that's absolutely just remarkable, and I didn't, I, I kind of, I mean, I did. I was I was getting fired up with the whole, you know, what controls this? It isn't about writing a letter to your congressman. It isn't about voting for a political party. It isn't about the roar of the crowd or commentators or having a rally or it's just this the, the market has its returns just as a matter of course it does what it does some years are going to be up some years are going to be down you have absolutely no control over this for for people who are getting ready to retire so let's say well we plan on retiring in two years and all of a sudden the market takes a huge hit well that that that's taking a, an early bite out of their their nest egg and that can impact really how, how well they're going to do or how, how long their money is going to last in retirement. And they have no control over this. You could plan for years. Well, I'm going to, I'm going to retire at this particular age. There's no, idea, there's no, there's no way to know what the market's going to be doing at that time. Furthermore, you see people who retire and they're like, Oh, we're all good. We got plenty of money and the market keeps going up. Everything's wonderful. And all of a sudden in like year two, year three, something happens, the market gets hammered. And all of a sudden they find themselves in this, in this, in this situation where they're they're getting pulled down by the by the sequence the sequence factor. Now an, another kind of insidious element of it, and uh, I mean yeah, sometimes I wonder like do I want to awfulize too much? I'm, I'm not trying to flip everybody out, but I just want everybody to see it and then step back, take a deep breath, and go okay, what am I going to do about this? But the the returns as they manifest don't make make it obvious in the beginning right in the first few years so even these two people where at the end of the first year sally she had 78 bucks 78 dollars and 30 cents now she might have been like oh i'm alarmed about that but she could have felt like oh you know the market will come back and it's going to be okay somehow this is going to work out because everybody says it's supposed to be okay everybody's doing this this is what this is what people do and that 78 dollars is enough money to get her through year two and it's enough money to get her, her through year three. So you see, she makes it all the way to 11 years before the money runs out. And and I, I guess what I want to focus on here is the, if you were in year five and you were in the middle of this of this storm, this uh, and what are the you see the in the ocean where that where it's spinning and people are getting sucked into the sucked into the drain, this vortex. It, here, here's an, here's a very important point about this. You can be well into it. And not even really realize that you're in it. So there's a sort of a stealthy element to this where it's like people think, oh, I'm okay because I've still got enough money to pay my bills next year. But they don't realize that if they if they close in and they look out across the future to where they're headed, I mean, they're not going to hit they're not going to hit the wall maybe in two years, three years, four years, five years. But it's going to be this later point where they where they end up hitting the wall. And and one of my my things that I keep repeating over and over again in this book is that. The place people need to think about is what shape are you going to be in when you're in your upper 80s or you're in your you're in your 90s or what shape is your spouse going to be in when he or she reaches those ages you know if and when they reach them and it's just um 
it's 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 at those ages that are just so delicate where there's there's no way to redo there's no way to brush off a resume and go back and fix your problems running out of funds in your in your late 80s is just just a very very tough thing and as we mentioned earlier this you know a lot of people feel there's going to be this poverty crisis among women because in a lot of cases the they again women have married men that are a little older than them uh the, the man dies first the man takes a bunch of the nest egg with him when he goes because dying can be super expensive and all of a sudden the the woman has is financially impaired uh, because she's had this huge hit to the funds or you know the, the nest egg is completely in a different space than it was and then she's supposed to be able to try to figure out a way to live on uh, after her husband is gone and that is just really going to be uh, for millions of people, uh, well, really around the world, but I mean in the United States, particularly, because is in my mind because I focus, I live here, and this is the, this is the world I see faced, you know, up front, a huge issue, and that's why I, that's why I go back to the early early rules where it's like control your expenses, right? Uh, downsize sooner than later. Put yourself in a position where you're strengthening yourself financially. And you're not starting off just draining the hell out of your finances and putting yourself in a position where you just don't, it, where you're going to impact the future in in, in unknown ways. By, by spending too much in, in early retirement years. And then, then secondarily, this idea of to the degree that it's possible and reasonable and, and suitable to have as much of your basic security, your basic bills paid for with pooled income sources. So that's, that's a combination of a pension, which when people go, I don't have a pension. I can't get a pension now. It's too late. Well, then they'll have Social Security, and they have the ability to supplement just small amounts for, with, with fixed income annuities. Fixed income annuities... This is something I, I mean, one of the other appendixes is about the different types of annuities. And, you know, maybe that's the next show I should do is talk about them because there's some confusion there. People say annuity, what does that mean? There's so many different products that bear that name. And the one I'm talking about is the most boring, you know, low risk, low return. These are, these are like bank CD, a little more than a bank CD type uh, income uh arrangements that are that are actually insurance when you put money into them they're they're it's called it's your you're said to be paying a premium and what this does is the the typical life annuity in its traditional form is an instrument that promises to pay for an exchange for for a, a premium payment <clears throat> it promises to pay an income to the insured for the rest of their life and so what the thing that's unique about it is that once a person has this portion of their funds, whether it's, but you could look at social security the same way or pensions, they're all the same from their fundamental elements. And that th this is a, they have, it has a third party that says, based on the contributions you've made and based on when you start to take withdrawals, you're going to receive a certain amount of income. And the third party is promising to pay those and make those income payments for life. So in the case of an employer, employee, uh, insurance company or pension, then the, the, the workers in the United States that have that pay into Social Security. Well, that Social Security is promising to make that payment. Now, people debate back and forth whether or not the promise is good. And I mean, I'm not in the alarmist side of that story, uh, even though I'm my like my oh boy, my, my political leanings are more free market libertarian ish kind of perspectives. I still feel like Social Security is uh, is going to be reliable in the future that you'll, you'll see the government. They won't they will not they cannot allow it to default because too many people are dependent on it and they're just and as they do with every difficult situation that they face they'll just money printer go burr they'll they'll just print more money as is my, as my estimation of this and and because they just can't they can't have led tens of millions of people down this pathway to say we text you 
we taxed your employer into this we forced you at you know law against the you know penalty of law to pay into the system and now when it's your time you're finally your turn to to receive your money back because we spent the money or squandered or did all kinds of stupid things to make it so the money is quote unquote not there they can't say to those people hey by the way, we're not giving it to you. I mean, they're, they'll come up with a way. It'll be like the stimulus. They'll just go, okay, we did the $2 trillion, the $8 trillion Social Security reset fund. And next thing you know, the next day, money printer go burr. They will come up with the money to fix it. I mean, I just feel like there's just very unlikely that there's any possibility of scenario where the government turns around and says to people, yeah, I know we forced you at the point of a gun to put your money into this, but we're not paying. I just, that's just politically, that's just impossible. Um, so regardless, the pooled income funds, assuming they're good quality, would be there to pay income for life for the person. And I mean, that is a huge, that is a huge help because then you're not having to, to hammer your nest egg over and over again in order to buy milk, eggs, and bread. When income has to come out of a portfolio basket, bills come. They don't care whether it's a bad economy, a good economy. They don't care whether there's some black swan event. They don't care about any of that stuff. They say, hey, there's a utility bill. Here's a utility bill. Got to pay it. Need, need to get groceries, got to buy groceries. Need a copayment for healthcare, got to pay the, the copayment for healthcare. To the degree that, that a person is, is uh, kind of locked in a vortex where they have to, in order to pay those ongoing bills, they have to take withdrawals from the portfolio. When the portfolio is under stress, the withdrawals that they take, take more money out of the, the, the portfolio and, and they impair the portfolio's ability to recover because they're removing base funds that, uh, that, that are necessary to be able to, to, to rebuild the, the nest egg uh, in future times and when the market might improve or, or circumstances you know, return to more normal or even more prosperous conditions. So, so that was the reason where when I, in the rules where I said, hey, separate your income from your wealth. Okay, so, so you have the nest egg. Instead of thinking of it as one thing, try to, try, to, try, to, try to pull it apart into two. Allocate the funds that are necessary to be able to create sustainable long-term income, right? And then, then have the second part where you're able to put it in the market and plant it and let it grow. And, here, and here's, the, here's the thing. The ups and downs in the market that, that, that are basically the manifestation of the sequence. What, what's, what's making this ship sink? What's, what's causing all the difficulties is the fact that the person's taking withdrawals for income. I mean, if you think back on your career like how hard it's been to grow your nest egg, right? And you've seen up years and down years and sideways years and all these different things. Think about, how, I mean, let's, let's say that was difficult from a certain standpoint or it took time. Well, if you, imagine if you were trying to grow the same nest egg over those years, but every year you were taking, you were taking like a big bite out of it or some bite out of it for income. In that scenario, there'd be less money in the fund to be able to compound over time, to grow over time. When a person retires and they start taking income withdrawals from their portfolio, that has an impact on the sustainability or the ability of those funds to grow because each year this bite gets taken out of it. So it's already going to be more challenging to grow funds when you're taking bites out of it. And then when you factor in the fact or the, the conditions that people can be taking bites out of their, their portfolio in, in down years, it just, it just adds another layer of impairment and makes it difficult. So in the, the bottom line, I'm suggesting or asking people to at least consider is that you, you separate your funds. You have the income funds that are on one side where you, you, you create this uh, combination of, of guaranteed income from Social Security, pension, annuities, if you need them, if they make sense in a person's situation. There's a lot to consider here. But So the idea that bills in those down years, right, milk, bread, and eggs are purchased from the pooled income side of the ledger. 
and then separately we have the funds that are invested or that are the wealth building funds those funds because they're not getting bitten into when the market goes up and down they don't get they don't get they don't get bites taken out of them because of, of for income purposes so they're able to they have a much better chance of recovering against the buffeting tide right against the ups and downs in the market over time because that they're then then those funds are kind of in the similar space that your funds have been in essentially all your life as you've developed your nest egg they're not constantly getting chipped away on a kind of a kind of a, a second layer as people take income so if you have funds that are not going to be used for income you can put them aside and this is the plant the money tree idea and those funds can can carry forward and there's more to say about you know, the, port, the portfolio risk when somebody has a substantial portion or most of their their basic income needs met through guaranteed income that puts them in a different sort of a risk position there they can afford to take a little more risk with the money in their money tree side because they have security and stability in these the, the combination of the guaranteed funds that are sustaining them over time whereas when someone is in a portfolio alone they can't take risks very easily because if they make a mistake they can actually impair their their basic security because they've affected their their base income they've 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 they're they're putting at risk money that they need for milk eggs and bread so so i'm trying to get the idea of separating those two and and, and i don't mean to try to you know rebroadcast the whole book in this one show because you got to go back and listen to the other rules to be able to get all the, the pieces of this but i really wanted to show today and i hope you see that the average return is is really a function of of a series of returns over time you depending on when you start depending on when a person retires with a portfolio model they're going to experience a series of returns right each year they're going to get something and no one knows what that's going to be and if it's and if there are a lot of negative years in the beginning or just before retirement it can have a dramatic impact on how how the sustainability on whether or not there's going to be enough money whether or not the money is going to last for for the for long term in the future and, and what's at risk is if, if we get this out of balance or out of order or, or just get this sort of sideways and it's it's in a problem, problematic state, what it ends up doing, and it's, again, it's hard to see when you're in the middle of it because you think, oh, I'm, I'm in year five and I'm good. I had enough money to pay my bills. What? The big risk is that later on in life, later on in retirement, you can find yourself in a situation where the, where the funds are depleted. Uh, even though you used what might have thought might have seemed at the beginning like a responsible average, like hey, you didn't overdo it. You, you used a historical average that made sense, and everybody thought that seems reasonable, but they had no idea, and no one has any idea what the in, in terms of the sequence, what 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 the each year's returns are going to be like uh, when you or when any individual starts uh, retirement or plans to start retirement. So, well, that's a lot for today, folks. So I hope it was helpful, and I hope it was understandable, and. Maybe go back and listen to it again. I, you know, I, if if it wasn't clear, and certainly, I mean, I, I, it's one of the reasons why I wrote the book. I mean, because I just, I, it's this running out of money later in later in retirement, is a huge problem. And I'm like, man, I got to say something about this. And so that was that was a big reason why why I wrote the book. And, and that one person who told me, because we we saved them because they ran out of money, and we were able to rearrange their world and and have them have a sustainable retirement and start rebuilding their nest egg and get everything. You know, I just, the, these people, the lady said to me, she's like, you should, you should do this for the rest of your life. You should, this should be your career. And I'm like, well, I'm, I'm a commercial insurance broker. I have all this other stuff. It's like, I, I, I didn't mean to get sucked into this space. And maybe, maybe from a certain standpoint, my perspective on it is, is because I'm not, I'm not at a brokerage firm or selling mutual funds or stocks, or I'm not a financial advisor. Or I'm not giving financial advice to people in terms of like, well, you know, what, stocks and allocations they should buy I just and I also approach this as, as as a person who's had a career based based on on managing risk 
I mean, I'm a, I'm millions and millions of dollars of healthcare risk for, for, for clients. I mean, it's just like, I, I see risk all the time. You're like, well, how do we, how do we, how do we, you know, deal with the fact that there's going to be risk and what can we do to, to, to reduce it and, and arrange people's affairs so that they, they, you know, do the best they can in a difficult situation. Uh, and, and when I apply that mindset to this retirement story, it just becomes clear that there are ways to do this where you can, you can separate the, the funds and you can say, okay, look, we're going we're gonna to get a decent, establish a, a guaranteed income amount and we're going to co- coordinate that with lowering expenses and set it, situating ourselves so that we're not you know, burning too much money as we go so that most of our bills are going to be paid with this guaranteed income and then we're going to take remaining funds, we're going to invest them, then we're going to plant the money tree. And we're going to leave those funds over there, and they're not money that we're planning to take for income until maybe later as an emergency in the in late 90s when all of a sudden it's like, oh, my my guaranteed income funds haven't, are keeping up with inflation as well as they should be. I'd like to have a little extra income. Well, you might have the idea is to have have this secondary area where over there in the in the side yard where you planted the money trees, you can go over there and maybe chop one of them down and fix your income problem so that you're so that you're safe. But those monies aren't going to be available unless. Their money trees are planted and left undisturbed to grow throughout retirement. And, I, and the other point I make in the book, which is just absolutely, people got to see this. Look, if you're 65 years old and you feel like you're behind on savings or you know, you're just looking at your circumstances and you feel like you'd like to have more, the, the challenge becomes how can you orchestrate, how can you arrange your affairs so that you can live on guaranteed income and have, have enough excess to be able to start to put some money aside to plant that money tree? I make the statement that savings is, is important even when you're older, even when you're in retirement. You want to have some money that's over there, that's not in play, that's not on the table to be spent, that is allowed to grow. And, and it's someone who's 65 years old, it's 20 years to 85. It's 25 years to 90. It's 30 years to 95. Well, if somebody even then just put a, 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 just, a, just a reasonable portion of their funds aside and said, hey, I'm just going to put it over there and these are, these are funds I don't disturb. And let them grow throughout the retirement years so that if something happens, if later on you need help, if later on you just don't know where we're going to go, right? You have this backup. You have this extra element where this, this, this money has been set over here, set aside and not messed with and let it grow throughout that time. 20, 30 years is a long time for something to grow when you, when you, when you leave it alone. I mean, look at your retirement plan. That's where the money came from. It was money that m- much of it or s- substantial portions of it you started saving years and years ago, decades ago. And that's the workhorse money. That's the money that really changed the fund. And for most of what you're, the value that people have in their funds is from the money that they started out with. Those, those early days when you're like, well, I'll just put a little bit in, that becomes the, 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 the foundation of a, of a retirement portfolio. So, so what I'm suggesting is let's, let's use what, what works in that, in, that, in that world and say, okay, all right, all right, I'm retiring. I'm retiring at age 70. I'm going to make sure I set some, some funds aside. I'm going to arrange my affairs so that I'm able to set some funds aside that I don't have on the table as a possible income source. You know what I mean? Like I'm not, I'm not going to, I'm going to let them grow. I'm, my intention is to leave them alone. And, and when, and when the black swan events occur and whatever political orientations people have when they're happy or they're unhappy or there's ins and outs and all the things that happen over the next, the coming decade, you go, well, that's great, but I'm just leaving that money over there and it's just going to do what it's going to do. And, and I'm going to let it grow over time. I'm going to benefit from my, my hedge fund manager guy who says, you know, you know the, the idea that the only way to make money in the stock market is to buy and hold forever. I'm talking about banking some hold forever funds. Now, yeah, as we get into other shows, we're going to talk about some more stuff. And I'm thinking about rebranding the show and it's late in the show to start talking about this stuff because, you know, not everybody makes it this far. But uh, we'll be talking more about the money tree funds and what's possible over there.
uh, in future shows because uh, that's that's something I think is a really important message to, to get out there too. So, all right, folks. Well, thank you very much for listening. As, as always, if you have any questions, you can email me, ted at tedstefano.com and, uh, and visit my website, tedstefano.com to see all the stuff I'm working on. Uh, again, I really appreciate you listening. I hope that you find this helpful. And uh, in, until, until next time, have a great week and we'll talk to you soon. Bye-bye.